so from the wilds of Newfoundland, I have a guest who was the very first family recommended guest. And it's <laughs> it, it it's the first time where I've I've ever said to my brother, Yeah, that sounds like a good person to talk to. <laughs> uh so I wonder, uh Clark, if you could, would you introduce yourself to the listeners? Take a drink first. But of course, yeah. Um <laughs> You're listening to Can't Sell This, a podcast about creativity, creatives, and their process, with your hosts, Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. My name's Clark. I'm a, I'm a freelance video editor. Um, have been uh, stationed out of Toronto for the past 15 years, and just recently... Uh, saw the opportunity to skip out of town when uh, shit hit the fan last March and everyone was basically sent home to work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I've been active in the industry for a while, started out as a assistant editor, uh, sort of, you know, skirted the traditional uh, school, uh, film school, uh, education and just kind of got a job and clawed my way clawed my way out of the assistant editor's room into the editor's right. room and uh, haven't looked back it, it, would you would you characterize that more like like an old-timey apprentice style of of learning yeah definitely i mean old time so yeah yeah <laughs> uh I, so, okay, backstory. I did, I did go to film school for two years. Um, uh, as I'm sure you, you had experienced and every, every child who has come up through the Ontario education system experience that you're sort of brainwashed into, to going to university, regardless of, of the path that you're looking to take. Um, and I had the grades to go to university. So, I managed to get myself a scholarship to Carleton University for their their film program. Uh, but after two years, I kind of realized all I was ever going to do, blanket ever going to do in in their curriculum is is watch movies and write papers on the movies that I've watched. <laughs> and that's, you know, I'm, I wasn't looking to become a critic. Right. I was looking to to produce stuff, to get involved in some way. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I didn't really know what that was. Uh, I originally thought I was uh, wanted, I always knew that I wanted to be in documentary. So at first I thought I wanted to, to direct um, in, in the course of trying to pursue that, you know, I, I got a camera and at that point I thought I wanted to be a DOP or a camera op. Um, and after, you know, two or three years of going down that road, I had, mountains of footage and had done nothing with it right. so i looked started looking into video editing software because you know what's the point of taking hours of footage and just sticking the tapes in a box mm-hmm. so once i got my hands on you know uh final cut pro which was the 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 software that i first cut my teeth on i i it just opened up a world of of creativity for me um and and just never really looked back so i did a lot of videography after that point but uh yeah as soon as i as soon as i got my hands on the software i i kind of knew that's that's where i wanted to 
to live. And that's kind of the, mm-hmm. the, the role that I was hoping to play in the industry. Well, what, you know, you, you said you knew that you'd be want, you'd want to go into documentary. What specifically about documentary filmmaking was, is that drew you to it? So I went to uh Glebe high school and uh, there was a course that you could take in grade 10 that was called screen ed. So screen education. Mm-hmm. Um, and the teacher uh, was a gentleman named Mr. Godwin. And he had a huge influence on me um, just in terms of my, my, my tastes, uh, as far as opening my eyes to this world of documentary, he showed us all these rad, you know, old NFB newsreels, um, right. from the sixties and all this crazy stop motion animation and all this stuff. Um, and it kind of, it, it, it was really my first introduction to documentary because I don't think, I don't think there's a lot of outside of maybe your, your traditional nature documentaries. I don't think there's a lot of kids under the age of 14 that at least back in the nineties mm-hmm. that really, that really had an appreciation for, for what documentary could be. Um, and then one day he just took, he took two classes. I think it was over the span of two classes and he showed us Roger and me by, by okay. uh, yeah. Michael Moore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about Michael Moore and his documentary style at this point, having been in the industry and, and working in documentary. Yeah. But at the time, very impactful, right? It was an eye opening experience that documentary isn't just either talking heads, you know, Ken Burns style. And it's not just, you know, uh, nature of things or or, you know, the wildlife like. Uh, what was that? What was that wildlife documentary that I used to watch? Like Mutual of Omaha. Mutual of Omaha. Yeah. Yeah. Wild so, Kingdom. It, Wild Kingdom. Yeah, man. I used. Oh, yeah. I loved that, man. I should. It, that would be a fun thing to look up again and just, just you know, just to see. Yeah. Uh, you know, see its approach it, now that stuff like Planet Earth is around. Yeah. Exactly. Right. I mean, like it's interesting, but I actually we I. I have shown a lot of NFB films to my daughter and and to my son, but to my daughter. Yeah. Because bedtime is like, you know, we could watch, I mean, we we actually right now we're on, we're very much into restoration videos. So someone finds something that's all rusted and messed up and we watch how, how they fix it. And it's always, she finds it fascinating. And I just love the fact that she finds it fascinating. That being said, we have watched so much NFB films like there's there was a whole series called science please that's an animated it's a series of animated shorts that are like they just explain gravity and 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 friction their animations were incredible and the way that they did them back in the day were like glass glass sheet stacked you know 20 20 layers on top of each other and the techniques that they used yeah i I sort of lack of having computers was was as yeah. fascinating as the documentaries in my opinion. I just I just think we have I think I think we were very fortunate to have the NFB. I think the NFB is mm-hmm. one of those one of those organizations that uh that, that provided an, an outlet, you know? Like it's it still it still does. It, it, I mean, oh, I know, you, I know. That's what I mean. It's just an, amazing. If anybody out here listening, uh if you have an idea and you and you you're passionate about this idea, and you think it's got legs and you think there's a real story to tell, but you don't know how to do it yourself. You mm-hmm. can approach the NFB and do a co-production with them. Yeah. And they will finance you as, as you know, obviously as long as they find it interesting themselves, but they will provide financing for you to go develop your idea, 
flush out all of your kind of loose tangents, bring mm-hmm. it back to them. And if they think it's a go, they will finance your documentary and they'll, they'll help you make it. Now, obviously they take ownership of it after that, yeah. you know, you're not, you would, you'd obviously have whatever credit director, you know, but um, yeah, they have a lot of, a lot of really cool tools for, for new filmmakers or just filmmakers who, you know, maybe they're established, but they have an idea and can't, can't find funding for. Right. Yeah, it's a great great organization. I mean, we have, you know, we've actually discussed in a previous episode that I had an idea for a short film and I went and I managed to get a meeting with a producer at the NFB. It was one of those funny, like, she read the script and she's like, we don't do thriller, horror. (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay. She goes, if you want to do a documentary and it's Canada-based, I mean... I'll listen to you, but you know, it was one of those like funny conversations where <laughs> I didn't realize, I didn't know, I didn't yeah. know, I, you know, yeah, I was I just got, like, I got, a, know? I got a slasher film. You guys want to make it? Well, yeah, it's not, <laughs> I want to think it's not a slasher, but okay, <laughs> there's yeah, definitely yeah. death in it. But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but it was funny. Like I've, I've never been a documentary. I, I watched documentaries, but I've never been mm-hmm. a, a I couldn't tell the true story of anything if I put my mind to it. Um, <laughs> but it was a funny moment when she's like, we don't do what you're talking about. <laughs> um, anyway. So what, what was your, what was your first like professional, like I could go to your IMDB, but let's, let's just mm-hmm. go through it. Like, so your first professional gig as an, as an assistant editor mm-hmm. um, versus your first professional gig as a, as a full editor. What what do you find is the sort of difference between those two tasks, for instance? Um, well, I mean the the very obvious the very obvious answer to that is as an assistant, you're 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 ingesting footage, or at the time that I was doing it, digitizing footage because the the footage wasn't digital when it came to me. Hmm. Um, syncing things, prepping whatever the editor needs, doing basic assemblies. Um, it, it's a lot of housekeeping it's a lot of technical housekeeping right. and it's, it's more often than not a very thankless job. I mean, I think I was, I was an assistant editor at this, at this post-production house for probably a year and a half. And I realized that no one had ever said thank you or, or <laughs> good job. Um, but I also realized that I'd never been yelled at and I'd right. seen other assistants getting yelled at. So I figured I was probably, you know, on the right side of that, the right side of that line. Um, but the, the, I'll tell you the story, the story of my first, I had a couple small editing credits uh, while working at this post-production house. Now, this is this is back in the day when when editing systems were so expensive that mm-hmm. your average production company couldn't afford it. You know, an Avid, which is was and is still pretty much the industry standard. Um, you know, for an Avid computer, you couldn't just buy a computer and put Avid on it. You had to buy an Avid computer. Right. Would come yeah. and install it in your this, rack. Yeah. And the thing probably cost a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And so your average production company couldn't afford that. So instead of installing their own editing system, they would go to a post-production house that had eight or ten of these suites in a row, right. and you would rent the suite. And uh, my first job was that I was an assistant and I sort of came with suite two. So whatever show was being cut at a suite two, I was the guy to facilitate whatever needs the editor had. Right. And, um, or maybe it was suite two, three, and four, whatever the show was, however much room they took up. I was, I was the assist- assistant for the show. Right. So 
I was working on this one show uh, called How Machines Work, which was a Discovery Channel show. Oh, I love that show. Um, it's not how it's made, which is it, which is what most people confuse it for. How Machines Work was a uh, uh, inside look at machines. It was fifty percent fifty percent kind of computer uh, CGI component and fifty percent uh, uh, live action. So they would they would film a Prius kind of driving down the highway and oh. mid shot the Prius would sort of morph into CGI and the thing would break apart into a million pieces and you'd fly through the thing and learn how it worked and then it would slam back together and drive off and, okay. and so forth and so on. So I was the assistant for the show and it's not uncommon for shows to kind of um, lose footing off the bat and, and kind of have to regroup and kind of, you know, everyone comes together and it's like, okay, well that, that approach didn't work. So what are we going to try next? Mm -hmm. And in the process of that happening, uh, the editor actually left the show, the main editor. So <laughs> they ended up hiring. So this show cycled through editors like a revolving door. I think, hmm. you know, there was, there was all of six episodes and there's probably eight editors that kind of cycled through this thing. And, uh, probably three or four months into it I was actually the guy who cut the first segment uh, just to like proof of concept for the right. for the the owners of the production company to take a look at and uh, not only had the editors cycled through the director cycled as well so there was a new director Yeesh. and we were working on the segment um, it was about a roller coaster and he wasn't happy with what you know, the editor that had left had done. And I said, well, you know, like, this is the segment that I cut to show the original, you know, team what what could, you know, what the show could be. Why don't you take a look at it? So I showed it to him. And he kind of turned and looked at me and said, like, why are you why are you ingesting our footage and and syncing things and doing outputs like you could be working on the show? Right. I said, well, like, that's You're like, hey, I'm available. That's a, that's a great <laughs> thought. But, you know, I was I was a full time employee of right, this company. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he he, he kind of looked at me straight in the eye and said, like, very seriously, he's like, you can keep on being an assistant or you can quit your job. This was a Friday. He said, you can quit your job today, come back on Monday, sit in the same chair as an editor, as opposed right. to an assistant. And make twice as much money so that was that was all the convincing i needed to right. uh to go <laughs> I, had a, I had a conversation Lose with the boss vacation. and uh you know it was like you know i want to make sure i can come back because i needed the security and that you know yeah um but funny enough by the time we finished that show things had been changing quite a bit at that point as far as how cheap technology was getting right and by the time i finished cutting the show the model of having a post-production house wasn't wasn't as viable as it was an, a year and a half earlier when I started Amazing. as an assistant on the show. So, when, and this is this is a saving grace. When I finished the show and I went to my old boss and was like, "Okay, I'm, I'm done editing the show. Now I need a job again as an assistant." He was basically right. like, "Well, I don't have a job for you." Right. <laughs> so that which forward, is good. Well, right? it, was, it was great. It was it was a kick in the pants to to get out there and and just you know hustle like find move, find more work or... as opposed to moving backwards, which is yeah. what I was what I was going to do at a security sake, but 
thank God. And when when was this? What year this was, was this? Ooh, 2009, 2010. 2009, 2010. Wow. Holy. So... Yeah. 11 years later you're you're just you're just like well here i am so when when you you know it's funny but this is a very sort of uh we i interviewed a guy named jeff wright jeff wright is our was our studio guy right like he would do our recording for us uh he's a recording engineer Mm -hmm. and he talked about sort of a similar kind of thing where their director wasn't doing the job that they needed to do and he so he or the sorry let me think about this the director stepped out and was like mm-hmm. you keep directing the the talent so while he was normally a recording engineer he like directed the talent through the process and i guess what happened was is that the director wanted to watch him work as a director and then gave him work as a director so uh-huh. so directing voice talent so like that mm-hmm. kind of concept of make it or break it based off your actual abilities is is pretty common in the in that industry in your industry and in his industry would, since he's yeah. animation right yeah i i would totally agree i mean your resume is only going to get you so far or whatever you know i've i've heard of people you know faking credits on imdb to to get to get their foot in the door one way right. or the other but at the end of the day like that doesn't really even matter like either you can do the job or you can't right and well and so much of it is word of mouth so it's all word of mouth go by the, the good grace of the person you worked with last sort of thing so if you have the Absolutely. reputation of being a crappy not just a crappy editor but a crappy person that follows you right like yes yes definitely yeah i shouldn't ask questions that have a yes or no answer <laughs> so <laughs> i it's one of the it's one of the things that that i I, I work I work on but you know <laughs> what are you gonna do it happens um when did you when you first when you first started doing the filmmaking stuff for yourself and then and then said like you know what I just have a ton of footage and no nothing to do with it mm-hmm. did you have it in your mind and is it still part of your trajectory do you feel that that you're going that you wanted to direct that you wanted to you know create your own productions as opposed to editing someone else's yeah um funny enough it's kind of crept up on me a little bit in the past couple years um you know i i i ended up getting a job with vice um and that was like as a full-time senior video editor so you know my i did that for about five years Mm. uh and as much as I wanted to pursue side projects, the the thought of of stepping up from my computer after being in the office for eight to ten hours and then and then going home and sitting back in front of a computer, right. whether it's to plan a documentary or or whatever it is, right? I mean, anything that you're doing in the film industry is is in front of a computer, minus being in the field shooting and directing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, you know, I always knew that if I was ever going to do that, it had to be, it had to be a, a passion project that, you know, I really, I really cared about. And I didn't really find it. I didn't, I, I, the ideas weren't coming across. Since I've left Vice, I've, I've had a couple ideas. Um, a few of them have centered around, around Newfoundland stories. 
um, or, or different different things that uh, uh, cultural phenomena that exist in Newfoundland that don't exist elsewhere. And I'm not going to go into too much detail on them because, again, I haven't flushed them out or anything well, like that. Well, and also they might be a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, definitely. Um, in the past few years, you know, me, me talking about how, how fantastic the NFB is for helping new filmmakers comes from me, me approaching the NFB with some right. of these ideas. And, and uh, with any luck, uh, post-pandemic, uh, you know, may, I might be able to flush one or two of them out and, and produce my first uh, short documentary from start to finish. Look at you! Very cool. <laughs> That's very cool. I, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of of self-driven work. I, it's pretty much how my entire career has uh, mm-hmm. evolved. So I, I, you know, it's a it's it's a strange thing, and I, you know, that the, the the idea of like finishing your your nine to five to sit down and then work for another bunch of hours. Sometimes it just doesn't, you don't feel it, you know? Yeah. And especially when it's not something you're inspired by. It's a lot easier to put extra time in when you're inspired by something. Well, not only extra time. I mean, I've worked with, I mean, you know, every, every project I work on, I work with different directors and producers and I, particularly directors, I see the toll that it takes on them. I always try to make my edit suite like a very comforting, welcoming place to, to, Mm -hmm. to bring in these, the shells of humans that directors are when they come off of, of oh, the acquiring the 50, 60, 100 hours of footage that has taken them to, to, to finally say, I have what it takes to tell this story. Yeah. So I have the comfy chair and the chamomile tea and the biscotti and like whatever you want, you know? Right. That being said, I, I, I see what it takes out of people and I see what, what these individuals put into their craft and you know, as far as working in the TV industry and, and film industry, so more often than not, it's it's not this director's baby. It's not no. their brainchild. They're, they are being hired to facilitate a role in developing somebody else's idea. Right. And I don't, I don't know, again, now I haven't stepped into that role myself um, for my own passion project, but I, I imagine it would be, it would take a toll on you to put that much of yourself into, into a project. It takes a, it takes a very special kind of individual to be able to put your, that much of yourself into somebody else's, uh, brainchild and, right. and, and, and do what it takes to execute what they need you to, to, to produce the content that they had in their minds in the first place. I mean, that's, it's it, it takes over your life. It really yeah. does. Yeah. Well, there's very the, the, little separation between between uh, personal until you're and done, right? Like, until, until you're done. You, yeah. It's, it's, until you're, you're like, that's it. That's the last thing. That's the last it's scene. All in. You know, I, I, and this actually brings me to something else that I've always been really interested in, and it's one of the things that that's part of like I've done. I've learned a ton about audio editing for the podcast, like understanding. Mm-hmm what makes sense for pacing what you know where not notwithstanding the moments when i go look i'm just going to edit this out you know <laughs> like there are there are lots of moments where i'm like you know there's a big gap from when i was saying something to when i kept saying something yeah i'm going to pull those out so one of the things that i find really interesting and, and there's a whole reason that editing gets its own category in award shows right like mm-hmm. there's there is not just the director's vision, but the editor creates their own vision based off of whatever the footage is provided. And a mm-hmm. good editor is invaluable to a production. 
Yes. So have you found that your own creative mind, your own eye towards the footage has been, um, how has that been received when, when you're, when you're dealing with going from like a small production to a larger production, long-term things like what, how has that, how has your eye been sort of adjusted, um, in those, in those situations? Well, I, I don't know that my, to be honest, that my eye, you know, I take on every project with the same weight. You know, if, if I'm going to spend my time to work on something, I'm going to, you know, give it my all. I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, pull out of the stops. I don't, I don't look at, a, you know, a 30 minute television show versus an hour and a half documentary and say that one is one is more important inherently than the other um but you know as as an editor you know more often than not you know when when something goes to a film festival they bring you know what what they consider the key creatives so that Mm -hmm. often involves the 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 series producer otherwise known as the showrunner um maybe one or two other producers the director the director of photography and the editor and those are kind of the, the the that's kind of like the circular mind meld between those people that right. that that results in in anything being made um as a documentary editor one thing that i really enjoy about my job and and, and this is absolutely not to say that that um uh scripted editors don't have a creative touch they absolutely do you know, every production that is, that is produced, um, the editor certainly plays a very key creative role in, mm-hmm. in, in, in final output. But in documentary, one of the things that I find is cool is that the, the film isn't, the film isn't predetermined. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's, I don't have, I don't get a shot list. I don't, yeah. I don't get, um, you know, uh, a call sheet or hot sheets of what was filmed that day with a specific take circled being like, this is what you're going to use. Right. I'm, I'm essentially given the average ratio is one to one. So one hour of raw footage for one, uh, one minute of finished content. Okay. So for a one hour, what is a one hour television documentary, which is actually, you know, 44 minutes, two seconds and eight frames. I'll typically get about 44 hours of right. footage to, to, to boil down into 44 minutes of content. Mm-hmm. And what I think is the great thing about being, being involved in documentary from the post-production standpoint is that you really get to be involved in the decisions to craft the story. You get to say you're, you're, you're actually, you're, you're one of the key players at that table mm-hmm. discussing, you know, where where we should take this turn or should we include this or omit this or you found this little gem that no one even knew existed and you feel right. it absolutely has to be included as opposed to with you know um some feature feature films or whatever where you know the 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 music track for the opening title sequence has already been picked for you yeah you get a lot more you get a lot more creative license is is you know the 
the, the much shorter way of saying what I just took five minutes to say. <laughs> well, I think that's what I meant by the eye. Like it's there, you know, you, you, you apply, you apply a, a vision, mm-hmm. a greater vision to something that you need to distill down. Right. Like that's, and that is something I was going to touch on that is, is the idea that with features or with, or with even with probably with features more or less that more than with uh, television is they'll do, you know, the, um, um, the the word is lost on me right now, but the a series of panels that explain the shots and storyboard storyboarding. Oh my god, thank you so much. So storyboarding, <laughs> they'll have done all the storyboarding and and they can refer to those and that helps for the blocking for the DOP and that helps for you know you know where where the the second unit's going to be and that that helps for mm-hmm. everything right. Like yep. this is this this is the set of panels that that represents this particular scene we know those Mm -hmm. are the angles we want and we'll shoot a couple other ones and so that that editor gets like this is a block of footage for that particular scene right like so you know not to say and i mean like again that that comes with its own set of challenges as well i mean right you know there's 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 also i mean i again i i'm not a feature documentary uh editor at this point in time um or an, a, a scripted documentary editor, but I, I know lots of people that are, and it's yeah. not it's not as cut and dry as that. Um, your your role is is in is in sifting. Your your value is being the the filter which you're able to sift through all the takes, and maybe what the, yeah. what the director said was the right take isn't the right take, or again, maybe you found a little gem that mm-hmm. that that needs to be included that no one knew existed etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's yeah. it's it's less it's less of a story editor role than than your average editor uh has in documentary now i yeah. often work with story editors who will you know get get all of the the talking heads the, all of the interviews transcribed and they will build what's called a radio edit on paper and they'll pass that off to one of my assistants and my one of my assistants or the assistant on the project will assemble that series of talking heads right. in a row. Just, just to blankly tell the story in the most raw form. And they're often like, again, for a 44 minute documentary, they're often like five hours of, right. of talking heads right. that then has to be, has to be distilled and boiled down. Um, but even in that, even in receiving, you know, that radio edit as the editor, I'm always going into the transcripts. I'm always rearranging. I'm always, you know, working with the story editor. Um, mm. Nowadays, more often than not, story editors are are um, edit software savvy, so we can pass right. sequences and timelines back and forth, and you know, everything. Everything is so collaborative. It's it's it's. I can't, I can't express how collaborative the environment that I work in is, you know, a lot of Of editors, you know, you receive the, the award for, for, for editing for this, whatever it is that doesn't matter if it's Gemini's or Grammys or, you know, uh, or sorry, uh, 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 Oscars or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, like more often than not, you've, you've been in constant conversation, every, every cut, every decision, every music cue has been, has been discussed at length with, right. with a number of people before, before it's, it's been decided upon that that's what's going to actually hit the airwaves. 
Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny, but um, I I think that since I'm in advertising, like the the collaborative nature of of a project is, you know, we have a very siloed system as well, right? Like mm. we do one person does this and one person does that. You may talk through the whole thing, but you know, no one's doing my job on a project and no one's doing, I'm not doing someone else's job, that sort of thing. To me, it's like, you know, you may not, and and because you're you're working in documentary, they wouldn't really be called the talent, right? They'd be called, they'd be called the subject, right? Like that would be the- Yeah, contributor or subject, yeah. Have you found, have you ever been moved to a point while while working where you you kind of went i just need a minute here like this is it's so this is because they're real stories and they can be really powerful you know Mm. and while you're crafting that helping craft that narrative like have you have you found yourself affected by the the work you've done definitely yeah yeah without a doubt um if i'm to give one example of that um, it would be on a series that I edited for, again, for the Vice TV station in the U.S. and, and Crave, actually, up here in Canada, called Dark mm-hmm. Side of the Ring, oh, which right. was kind of like a true, cr- semi-true crime sort of gritty look at the kind of sex, drug, and rock and roll lifestyle of professional wrestlers in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Right. Um, it's now on season three. Um, I worked on the first two seasons, so I don't know exactly what the subjects are on season three. I'm sure it's they've they've moved their way into the 2000s at this point. But wow. there is one story um, about this family, uh, the Von Ericks, and they were kind of like the wrestling royalty of Texas back in the 70s. Okay. So this is when each sort of territory in the states had its own wrestling promotion. Right. Eventually. Um, the WWF out of New York bought every single wrestling, bought out every single wrestling promotion in North America Mm -hmm. uh, to put them out of business in essence. But in doing that, they also cherry picked all of the top talent and made this all-star kind of wrestling promotion, which, which is, is known as the WWF. So before that happened, in Texas, there was this family, the Von Ericks, there were five brothers, and they were all involved in the, um, I can't remember exactly the name of the, the, the Texas promotion at the time, but they were all the top stars right. in this, this individual. Um, one of the brothers, Carrie, went on to the WWF to become um, the modern day warrior um, who, who wrestled in WrestleMania. Anyways, the the remaining brother, Kevin Von Erich, um, he he watched all of his brothers get churned through this this wrestling machine, and right. they all either died of drug overdoses or suicide. And right. one of the contributors contributors, Jim Cornette, um, at one point gave a quote from Kevin, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing. Um, he said, uh, Kevin Von Eric said something to me that, that, that almost had me choked up. And he said, I was once one of five brothers and now I'm not even a brother. Right. And coming from a family of two brothers, there's something about that, that I, I, yeah. I, you know, the first time I saw it, you become, you become a little numb to things after a while. You know, like I, I saw that quote 200 times before I finished right. working on the show, if not more. But the first time I saw it, it it 
it hit hard. Like I, yeah. I, you know, I could, I could kind of, I was in his shoes for, for that split second because I was watching raw footage. Right. Of and, course. And, and, and yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a very real moment. Um, yeah. There's another instance. This is from when I was an assistant, but I was working on a documentary about how a number of Nazis escaped Nazi Germany through the Vatican and uh, went to Argentina and other 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 areas in South America right. and how the Vatican was the mastermind behind behind smuggling these Nazis out. Mm -hmm. And because the documentary was about World War II and obviously all the atrocities, there there was a there was a segment uh, or a scene in the documentary that was about the liberation of the concentration camps. Oh. And when you ask Getty Images or AP or Corbis or any of these large stock footage houses for the footage that they own of, of, of you know, uh, Western or allied troops uh, liberating the concentration camps, they don't just send you what, what is PG and you can show yeah. on Discovery Channel. They sent something like 20 hours of raw footage. I'm talking like the raw footage of the soldier walking in with the camera. Yeah. And as the assistant, it was my job to spend, you know, the better part of a week combing through all this footage and just picking shots that were PG enough to show on wow. Discovery Channel. And that 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 really that that honestly had an effect on me for for a week or two where it 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 was really heavy. You well, know? and it stays with you, right? I mean, it, it does. It did. That, there are things like that where it changes you, you know. Well, because we've we, all seen we've all seen the the footage on History Network, right? For sure. But again, those are the shots that <laughs> that but make even, it like, on yeah, cable. It, but you know, when you when you do see stuff that has not been watered down very much, it, it, you, I don't know. It, it, you'd have to be a pretty cold person to not be affected yeah. by it well and also when it's your nine to five and you don't really have a choice about it oh too, my god right? and the, well and this this actually brings up a, a this is an aside and perhaps won't <laughs> make it into the episode but did you read this there's a, a news story about um the people who are part of the moderation process for youtube videos and how traumatizing it is for them because they work in these these like not call centers necessarily, but big centers where they have to watch seriously traumatic stuff Yeah. to say like, Oh no, this is pornography or this is. Yeah. Murder I don't know. Or... I don't know if it was, if it was about YouTube specifically that I read that article, but I've heard that about, about the individuals who, you know, work for, you know, whatever police, the RCMP on the, on the, you know, whatever, uh, yeah awful websites well, there are out there and yeah it's, yeah it's you know you're you're fighting the good fight the one i read was specifically it. about youtube moderators and and just how they they're just like oh I, you know how traumatic yeah. it is for them psychologically that well, a lot of them can't do the job for very long and no i, I and, don't and all you can think is like, what kind of human being are you that you that that's the choice you've made is that yeah. you're going to do this to someone else you know whatever that is to then require that of another human being to be the person of, of vision to say, no, that's not yeah. okay. No, I know. Like the the stuff it's, it's that so we are so too, because protected as from. Was, as I was saying, you know, they're, they're, they, they're fighting the good fight. Um, and, and it all comes at a cost. Mm -hmm. 
you were recommended to me by my my younger brother Stuart, and mm-hmm. and he said that you worked together. We and w- did. Were you working together while you were in school? So you were like, this is your part time gig, or? So what? <laughs> so what happened was, um, so I said that I went to Carleton University for two years, mm-hmm. and and it, it just wasn't quite as fulfilling as as I I envisioned it. So I decided to take a quote unquote year off and go snowboarding in Banff. Oh, right. Oh, okay. So okay. I went up to Banff um, and I got a job in a restaurant um, that was kind of, you know, I was either working in restaurants or snowboard shops and I got a job in a restaurant and I did the season up there and I came back and I kind of, kind of thought to myself, like I can, I can do my third year and I can finish my BA, but I already know I already know that a it's not it's not I don't think it's a useful uh, way to spend my time just watching movies and writing papers. Right. And B, um, I had a friend who was living in Toronto and his sister's fiance was working at the post-production house that I eventually ended up working on. And I had an opportunity to have a couple of conversations with him. And he basically told me, like, just don't don't bother don't spend the $7,000 or whatever it's going to cost you for tuition and books and, and accommodation to finish right. that degree because it means nothing. No one cares about where you went to university <laughs> for film as, in, as far as a production standpoint. Right. Of course. Um, so when I came back from snowboarding, I decided that I wasn't going to um, go back to school. I was basically going to work and save money and moved to Toronto and and try to get my foot in the door at this this place that I was talking about the post production facility. So I ended up working at a restaurant, and that's where I met I your see. brother. He ended up working up there, uh, starting you know maybe a month or two after I did. Okay. And uh, it was a spot where the the staff were you know we were all in our early twenties. Yeah. Um, bunch you know, of goofballs with with time. You know. Yeah. No money, even though we thought we had money because I made a hundred dollar tip. You know, yeah, or, you know, it tips like in this whole night, you know, and you're drinking in the bar high. you work, oh, so you don't have to leave early, and you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was, you know, that that whole year was an absolute blast. But uh, yeah, that's absolutely where I met Stu, and uh, we we hit it off, and we were very like minded from the get go, and that's you know, great with the with the marvels of social media, we've been able to keep in touch even though we haven't been in the same city, so it's pretty cool. Because an editor, are you more stationary than? you know, nomadic, like a, like a director or, or of like, even a, a DOP or a camera operator would, would go where the work is go, like yeah. as an editor. Do you, is that like that so for you? DOPs and directors are, are, they're typically stationary as far as where they live. They just travel for work, right? They get right. sent to, to the UK or, you know, whatever on a, you know, 10 day shoot or a, however long the shoot is. Right. Um, so I'm I'm certainly more stationary in that you know I I I commute from <laughs> my house to my edit suite, um, right. where where again I try to make a very comfortable place. So I I like to sit down and have my cup of tea and dim the lights and and uh, it's it's uh, it's it's certainly a, a recluse from from the hustle and bustle of of the outside world, but. Um, one thing I will say about editors, uh, and this is this is just from experience from a lot of a lot of uh, uh, dudes and girls that I've met along the way, is that 
although editors don't get to go to all these weird and wonderful places for our work, mm-hmm. we kind of, we sit in one place and we, we do our job. The directors and the DOPs who go to these places, they typically go for, let's say, you know, 10 weeks or two months or even a month or whatever. And, and, and then their job is done. Whereas we'll get said footage and out of that six days of shooting, we will get six months of work to craft the the show, whatever it is. A lot of editors that I know because we're all contract based will work a six month contract you know, bank, bank the money and then just take off for two right. months because, you know, if you can find it, if you can find your next show that starts in a week, I mean, you'll probably take it. But if you don't have, if your next contract doesn't start for a month, you know, pre pandemic, obviously, why, why are you sitting around in your apartment in Toronto? Like you could be right. on the beach anywhere in the world uh, and, and not that much further out of pocket um, outside of uh, uh, an airline fee. And uh, yeah, you can disappear for, you know, if you're single, uh, which I was for a long, a long time as a freelance video editor, I'd just dip out. I'd take off and go anywhere. <laughs> dip out. I'm just dipping out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly, I dipped out a couple times. Yeah. I, for and sure. For, and for some of them, you know, I, I went for, you know, six months across Australia at one point. Um you know, my I had a brother in China. Went to China for three months. Right. Um, you know, you can just you can just go hang out somewhere else. And yeah, and, while sending the occasional email to people, going, "Hey, so what's the what's going on with you? Are you well, busy?" Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I better book a plane ticket home. <laughs> I got a gig. <laughs> it's a, it's a funny that's a funny insight. I a lot I, I didn't of, even a lot think of, of that. the editors that I know outside of those who have families which which i i do now so it's it's a much more it's a much less nomadic life but it's 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 contract and then and then nomadic life until the next contract it's uh it's a very kind of free-flowing lifestyle if uh if you can swing it and right you know i'm very happy with with where i've ended up and uh my beautiful wife and beautiful child. Um, but, but those years of, of kind of working and, and traveling are, are priceless. Yeah. That actually ends up being invaluable to someone who's, who's in, in the industry you're in to be able to have that perspective of I've, I've been to this place and I've seen this culture and I've been to this place and I've seen this culture mm-hmm. and I know what it's like to be here. And I know what it's like to be there when you, when you are, when you stay where you live, right? When you don't travel, it colors how you perceive everything. Absolutely. Right? Specifically working for Vice, a lot of a lot of the content that I worked on for Vice, regardless of what the what the the series was or the standalone documentary was, it was for the most part shot outside of North America. Right. So, you know, um I think I mean traveling just 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 colors your life in in the most fantastic way and and allows you to see things and more than anything just appreciate what we have as yeah. as North Americans you know Canadians on top of North Americans it's it's 
a level of, of, of comfort that is rarely seen elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the wonderful life perspective, but, but just, just, yeah, having, having, um, a bit of experience traveling and, and becoming comfortable in your surroundings and, and comfortable in, in, uh, an environment that is totally foreign to everything that you've known um, prior to that specific event that happened um, is, is definitely uh, something that's helped me kind of wade my way through footage and tell stories more importantly in a way that isn't just, isn't just Western centric or North American centric or Canadian centric. It's, it's being able right. to tell a story with empathy and, and, and an understanding that we're not going to look at this person through our lens. We're going to kind of drop our, our preconceived notions of, of what, you know, a grocery store looks like or what a street looks like. Listen, yeah. listen to this person on just a more basic level with a stripped down expectation is how I, is how I would always approach uh an interview subject are you familiar with uh vr at all are you working with vr at all i'm not particular no not myself no i have a couple of of colleagues who have who have gone into that realm and i find it incredibly interesting but i haven't had an opportunity to work on a vr project yet and the reason i ask is you know the the amount of like real video i watch or that that i i've actually i i used a 3d camera a 360 camera f- at the cottage that we go to uh, it's on Lake Nipissing. It's on an Island. And, yeah. and, and basically I was like, you know, it'd be really cool to, and I, this is the, the documentary, this is the documentary I pitched to okay. uh, some, some uh, film or journalism professors when I worked at Ryerson. So I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to the people that have cottages on, on this particular Island. It's called um, Sandy Island. Half of the Island is, is crown land and half of it is privately owned. So the, the privately owned section has been parceled out and, and, and some people own cottages and they've had their cottages since the seventies sort of thing mm-hmm. or sixties, uh, or they've had the land since the sixties. <clears throat> and I thought it'd be interesting to get their point of view on what it might be like to live on this Island for the length of time that they've had, like these are people in their seventies now whose parents built their cottages. Right. Um, and then, and then to the next generation in my wife's generation to get her perspective, because from her point of view, she was staying at her grandfather's cottage, right? Like mm-hmm. this is, this is that thing where it, her entire life has every summer has been going up to Sandy Island. But in the meantime, she has really been in, investing herself into understanding the Canadian identity and understanding where we fit within the First Nations and, and, and the impact that white people have had on the First Nations since we landed, you know, our, our boats and went, this mm-hmm. is ours, you know. And and so I was saying it would be really interesting to take, to have a conversation. And this is where the, the real problem arose, because getting a conversation with the First Nation tribes of the Nipissing would be difficult at best they don't want to talk to a white guy. You know what I mean? Like I I would like to know what it might be like to historically be sort of pushed off of where you live while, while having all of these messages of, Oh, it's so lovely here. I just love it. You know, but like where they have had unfettered access, all of a sudden they don't. 
And I would, I would love to have that conversation. I think, I think you, I think if you, have you, have you reached out? Have you taken the time to actually reach out? Because I think that if you have, I think if you did, I think you'd be surprised at, at the reaction that you got. I don't think, I don't think there would be so much of a pushback um, about who's telling the story per se. Right. As long as you approach it with the right intentions, I think there, there might be a community sense of participation just in the fact that there's somebody who's, who's trying to tell this story on, on a, a, a larger platform than, right. than they may have had an opportunity to tell it before. But you don't know until you. <laughs> well, yeah, until yeah, you yeah, reach yeah. Out. You wouldn't know. Well, I mean, and it was really funny is that I just happened to bring the camera with me, and I I filmed a bunch of three hundred and sixty video of of the lake and off the rock and of the moon and all. The, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is really great. So using a VR headset, like looking around and realizing I know nothing about recording 360 footage so it's not mm-hmm. great and you know <laughs> i really need to learn all that stuff but that's when i i was like you know this would make for a compelling story to mm-hmm. the juxtaposition between privilege and and not and it absolutely um uh so when i was talking to the journalism professors uh they were like oh this is this is great well, what would you do with it i'm like Mm, nothing. <laughs> you know, I'm the idea guy. I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. the execution guy. Do you want to do it? You know, like that's yeah. all I kind of reacted with. It's like I, I think it would make for an interesting documentary, but I'm not a documentary filmmaker. I'm a, I'm a goofball that has ideas <laughs> that needs someone with, with, uh, mm-hmm. with the talent and the interest to do it. So, anyways, no, that's 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 an, that that would be another wonderful. Um, opportunity to bring an idea to the nfb because you know if you come at this with with an idea and you want to do a co-pro and co-produce with them they could in theory team you up with a first nations director filmmaker um who's who's also interested in telling that story and and that's kind of the best of you got you got somebody with a great idea somebody who has has the 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 cultural background to bring to bring validity and and experience experience to that idea yeah. and then and then the nfb to to just shower you with dollar dollar bills <laughs> <laughs> not really there you go maybe, I mean, well, that, that, maybe it might just be two dollar dollar bill <laughs> <laughs> you are now the rich owner of one hundred thousand <laughs> sense um you know it it and this is an interesting this is an interesting thing and we've we've actually interviewed a couple of uh documentary people and and um you know one of the one of the things that comes out is documentary film is not a money thing it's it's something that you you have to be passionate about right like you don't you don't make a documentary because you want to be a rich person that's just not how that works no no certainly not no it's it's there documentary is is a is an art form of of passion and an art form of of people wanting wanting to tell stories that they they genuinely care about um Mm. it's it's you know you you might you might achieve an accolade here or there and you might you might bring your film to a festival um but even at that it's not going to result in in any sort of box office success now 
platforms like Netflix um, and every single streaming service has really lit a fire under the documentary producing community to ask because right before streaming services, you know, and you know, I can talk from experience. If there's a documentary on TV at, at, you know, 8 PM on Thursday and I'm, I'm hanging out with my brothers as a teenager, we're probably not going to watch it. We're going to yeah. watch the French Prince or whatever else was on at the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe we'd watch a documentary on like a rainy Sunday afternoon on PBS or something like that. Most of but them that better nature. have lions in it. <laughs> it. Yes. And they, they better be eating something. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, I think more than a lot of different genres of film and television, you, you really got to be in the mindset to watch a documentary, right. to watch a documentary. It, it is not the mainstream um, genre by any stretch. However, um, circling back, platforms like Netflix and Amazon and, and Hulu or w- whatever it is have brought in documentaries to people's fingertips where they can watch them at any point in their lives. And that has given rise to the popularity in documentary, yeah. which has pumped more money into the genre, which only results in, in, in a more interesting product that, that, you know, now these, you know, things like, you know, true crime documentaries or tiger King are rivaling anything else that is being produced and put out in that week on Netflix. Right. And it's, and that wouldn't have happened if, in my opinion, if those platforms hadn't elevated the the genre to the point where people were willing to push money at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I feel I feel compelled now to make this. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's worth flushing out. I mean. Well, I, I have your email address and hey. you are now going to be part of it because I can't do this by myself and I, I'm not I, smart enough to make a movie. <laughs> um, uh, but I but I can come up with why I would do it. Um, you know, it, it it's... And this, pro- this probably does bring me to the, my second point. And the, the second point that I had when you came back was, mm. um, do you find, as you, as you have for the past 11 years or uh, 10, 11 years, um, been doing this. Do you find, you know, as you're, as you're watching something, you go, you know, what would be cool. And it's like, you start to like, do you have a notebook just filled with like, this would make for a good documentary and then write a couple of pages and then close that book and then come back to it later with a new documentary idea. The the notes, the notes app on my phone. Notes app. Yeah. Has, has pages and pages. And sometimes it's, it's an idea um sometimes it's just sometimes it's an idea for a documentary subject matter and and how that could be executed um more often than not it's just cool editing techniques that i've seen that i think like oh this person did this and i noticed it because i would have never thought of doing it like that the way that they layered audio on video or vice versa you know they just they just they 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 applied a technique that was outside of my wheelhouse. So I'll make right. a note of it, um, not to replicate it, but just just as a reminder of of different, like just just to to be open to working outside of your wheelhouse. Like mm-hmm. I, 
I, I, I never, almost never watch a feature film and critique the editing in my mind. But I, I often do in documentary, particularly like the type of documentaries that I work on, because it's tough to watch something and not kind of think about how I might have done that or did I bump up against this edit because that's not how I would have rolled it out or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm constantly making notes. And, and as I said, it's often not about documentary ideas, but it's about techniques that I've seen that I kind of want to retain for if there's ever a place that I could kind of partisan that into, into something that might work for me. Well, you know, and, and so this sort of, this might be bringing us full circle to that, that first thing you talked about where you're like, yeah, I mean, as I've been here, I'm thinking a lot about a pro projects that would involve where I am currently and, and, and how, how insulated and siloed Newfoundland is as mm -hmm. a, as a province, right? Like that you yeah. are in a, it is a very distinct, it's a dis distinct society within a greater society. And yeah. so that must be an interesting prospect to come at it from the point of view of, you know, as a documentary person, you know, like do you, do you just walk around going, fuck, this would be a great story. Oh my God. I've come across so many great stories here. Um, and, and I've actually, I've tried to flush one out at the beginning of the pandemic. The CBC came out with this uh, COVID relief fund where mm -hmm. they, they were offering grants for people to create um, a various uh, array of, of, of content because they realized that people are sitting at home streaming stuff and we yeah. need new stuff. And they tried to, it was, it was both spearheaded as a way of procuring new content for CBC, but also in injecting an influx of money into an industry that had just seen a downturn. It was, it was, mm -hmm. it wasn't a charity project, but it was, it was a way of, of kind of giving back to those who had been contributing to CBC. And, and I, I pitched an idea with a, a woman out in Newfoundland here uh, named Lori McCarthy. And she's one of the kind of, uh, she's on the foreground of the foraging and hunting and wild food movement, which is something okay. that I'm very passionate about. And, uh, I got my letter back from the, from the CBC and we made it to their last round oh. of discussions and, and didn't get the funding. So I was really hoping to come out here and do something with, and we might still, we might still collaborate in the future if we can yeah. find, if we can find the means to do it. But, um, was the email maybe you could forage some funding? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know it's it's interesting. Like it, 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 this is a, this is technically an aside, but we stayed we stayed at a cottage that has turned into a home for this family that they bought this space and they um, they were living there over the summer. But what 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 was really interesting is the the husband is this he's a master forager. I've never been mm -hmm. out with someone where he just walks around and picks stuff. And he know. has a little satchel so, that he keeps. I'm so and, and envious. Then, I'm... And then next thing you know, you're like eating like greens and mushrooms and stuff that he just 
pulled off of the ground, like just walking around. And I'm, you know, I'm pulling out mushrooms, going, "What about this? Could we eat this?" Yeah, and he's like, yeah, yeah. "No, no, 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 absolutely not. not. No, drop it. Don't even touch it. <laughs> you shouldn't be touching it. No, no, you can't use that hand. <laughs> don't use that hand to like touch anything else. By the way, and don't touch your face because again, you don't want that. You know. And I yeah. think it's I think it's an interesting it's an interesting um, aspect of of your you aspect of you where you're like you know what i'm really into this like this is i'm gonna make this a thing well and the and, and you, know, you know i i have i have no problem sharing the premise of what we were going to do but the the pitch to the to the cbc because um you know one of the through lines is they wanted to have a a covid19 tie-in in some right. way to the content and uh, one of the lines in the pitch was essentially, you know, this is back and, and, and I have to remind everybody, this is back a year ago, last March. Right. right. So the pitch was, you know, in, in a time when, you know, uh, we're all approaching something as simple as a trip to the grocery store with trepidation, bumping into somebody or, or getting sick just from, from going about trying to procure food for ourselves. Mm hmm never has it been more important to learn about the edibles in our own backyard and how yeah. to find food and and provide for ourselves without having to to rely on on a commercial chain and and a lineup to get into a store and markers on the floors to tell you where to go within the store it's it's, right. it's more important than ever to know where your food is coming from and and to know where you're going to 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 source that food Mm -hmm. Um, and it's something that I've been, I've, I, it's, it's kind of happened later in my life. You know, most people learn about hunting and, and foraging and fishing through, through their fathers and uncles, yeah, family members. My dad, my dad's been an avid fisherman. He taught me how to fish, but, but hunting was never a part of my family and foraging food was never something that my family did as weekend activity. So mm -hmm. it's, it's only been since I, uh, I've been in my thirties that I've, I've kind of realize that these are things that I want to, I want to know where my food comes from. I want to be able to go out and walk into the woods and bring home something for my family to eat, whether it's as something as small as a fish and a fiddlehead, or it's, right. it's a deer that can feed us all year round. So it's something that I've kind of had to go out and, and through, you know, doing the courses to hours on YouTube and finding finding some like-minded individuals who are willing to teach me uh, out in the bush. It's been it's been an interesting journey that that I took on later on in life. Well, it and it this this is all part of the that whole generational learning thing. When you when you're talking about this is generally this is passed down. It's it's funny, but I remember picking fiddleheads with my mom. Oh yeah, as a kid like we'd go down to the the park and, and where, we, where we lived in, in Quebec mm. and we'd pick a bunch of fiddleheads and that's what we ate for, you know, dinner along with some manner of beef, I assume. But, yeah. um, but it, it, that is something that I remember, like I can remember vividly, like fiddleheads is a, is a thing you just pulled out from the park. You didn't grow oh, it. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so it, it is a, it is definitely an interesting observation that you tended to learn these things from the, the person that you lived with and you know? and and funny side note to tie this back into why we're talking in the first place is one of the things that that spawned me being interested in this whole this whole wild food food movement whether it's hunting or foraging is that i worked on a documentary about morale hunters who okay went out um 
morels are these 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 mushrooms that are a delicacy oh. in French cooking. <laughs> I thought you meant morels, like like your morals. No, 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 like... no, no not morels, morels, <laughs> morels, morels, morel, uh, morel. Okay, yeah, yeah mushrooms, these, these a type of really mushroom. fancy mushrooms that that typically grow in an area that has had a forest fire the year after a forest fire has occurred. So right. there is this couple in the, in the in the documentary that was talking about everybody's on this this whole you know organic kick or or GMO or whatever it is. But but at the end of the day, if you can walk into the forest, this is none of that. This is wild food. This is beyond organic. Yeah. This is the food that Mother Nature produces without us doing anything to plant a seed. This is this is just a gift. It's just given yeah. to us. And I thought that was yeah. a really cool idea. It's what happens naturally when we don't mess it up yeah well that that's very cool i you know um i think self-sufficiency is a, a long lost it's a lost art yeah. not long lost it's just a lost art in general most especially in urban settings like you know you came from toronto to newfoundland like you mm -hmm. may have had an interest in it but you couldn't have walked into you know there's no real forests in Toronto. So it's not like you no. would have gone like, oh, look at, I found, I found the chanterelles I was looking for, you know, like <laughs> it's just, you, you know, you're stuck where you are, but the, the opportunity when you go to, to Newfoundland is that opportunity exists now. Oh, it know? definitely exists. But I think even in a place like Toronto, there's, there's a, this, there's a bit of a renewed interest in, in foraging in yeah. foraging and just the, just the concept of knowing where your food comes from. And yeah, um, it's, it's not, you know, it's, everything's a spectrum. Not everything is, is as hardcore as like, oh, I only eat what, you know, I only eat the meat that I hunt or I only, you know, eat the mushrooms that I forage they, they, you know, there's different, there's different places to exist on that spectrum. But I think just the number of people who have kind of sparked an interest in, in the, the idea and i think that's more than anything just it's just understanding there's an idea of like your food comes from somewhere yeah the, the, a chicken isn't isn't a skinless piece of meat on a piece of styrofoam with 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 cellophane on it like that came from somewhere and for sure and there's 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 been there's you know not to get too too political about this but there is there's certainly a, a willful ignorance with a lot of people that they they don't want to be a part of the process of eating their food and there's there's a process from animal to to your your, your yeah. plate. You know, there's a number of processes. Um, yeah, but, from pasture to from pasture to plate. But it's be, only from it's only that's from the name of your documentary, the, by the way, from pasture <laughs> to plate. There you go. I've got it. Don't bother thinking of anything else. We're good. You're, you're not getting a right. royalty. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's how I. That's how I get paid. Oh, so, is it? Yeah. Oh. No, not at all. Have, not you ever. Have, you just have guests on, and then and just then, come and up, then I just come up with an idea for them. They go, "That's yours. You can have it. Uh, expect the check. I don't know yeah. what that's worth, but it's worth something. I'm sure." Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm a big, I'm a big tangent guy. That's um, what I do. When it comes to the the what we're all hoping for, which is the wind down of restrictions and and the wind down of what's what's going on um in terms of the business and and industry in general uh filmmaking and and feature films at least are sort of winding back up with a lot of Certainly. with a lot yes. of precautions right um in the case of documentary film I, I guess it would sort of depend on the type of documentary it is because if you're dealing with 
crowds of people, you're not going to do it. But if you're dealing with mm-hmm. one-on-ones, you could probably get away with quite a bit. Are you finding that that your work, you're getting more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Feelers, more feelers coming oh, your way? Yes. Like right now, specifically, yeah. But I, I was very lucky in that I was, when I when this all hit, I was still working on the second season of Dark Side, which kind okay. of took me, you know, right past the lockdown. Right. And then I had another documentary series that I was I was scheduled to start that had filmed pre-lockdown. So I just did that remotely from a house and and they had finished filming, so there was no real hiccups for that. Um and then that rolled into another Vice documentary um that was being filmed in the states. So cool. Like some of the scenes that I was working on were like water parks. And right. I'm talk I'm talking about like June, July, and thousands of people in water parks, not a single person wearing a mask down in Pennsylvania. So like the, the obviously for for safety reasons for the cast and crew, there was COVID precautions with masks yeah. and visors for those working, but like the subjects did not did not care that COVID because they were told it was just the flu and yeah, whatever. Wow. So Oh, wow. it's 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 been a it's you know not that it hasn't been weird but i i know some people who have who were like scheduled to start something you know in april and obviously all their shoots got shut down and some people yeah. really did did feel the effects but with kind of just the schedule of when i was have been starting shows and now you know again we've been in newfoundland here for about five months and I took this opportunity. My wife went back to work after uh, her year of mat leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been primary caregiver for, for our son for these five months. So I haven't been looking to work. I've, I've turned down one or two opportunities just cause like, there's no way, there's no way I can yeah. do that look after yeah. a, a 15 month year old or yeah, 15, 15 month old. Um, 15 month year old. I'm so tired, you. I don't even know. Oh, dude, it's been a long long day. Um, (laughs) so yeah, no, I mean, it's it's been weird within the industry. Um, yeah, it, it, I've been, I've been incredibly fortunate that it hasn't been crazy, crazy, um, disruptive for myself, but that's great. um, That that uh, is really great. Yeah, I don't I don't really know what to say because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, you know, act like it, it hasn't affected me when I, I know so many of my colleagues have. Well, have... I mean, no, it's obviously affected you. You left where you were living yes. and, and yeah. you know, <laughs> it, it has affected you. Don't yes. worry about yes. that. That psycholo- psychologically is in there. Don't uh, yeah. don't be concerned about, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it sort of becomes about survivor's guilt for a lot of us that have had work where we know people that, that don't. And I mean, like yeah. as their, as their unemployment continues and not necessarily like unemployment, just that their, their business is no, is not operating. I have, yeah. I know a number of different people who, you know, whether they're in service industry or, or whether they have it like a tattoo shop, like yeah. they're, they're just, they're just holding on by their fingertips, just going like, please just do the right thing and let's get, let's get to the next stage. So, you know, you, you, you recognize it as, as luck and you're very fortunate to to do it. it, There's no diminishing or dismissing anybody else's predicament. No, absolutely. There really is just a matter of like, Oh my God, you know, this has been, 
I've been very lucky. I've been I've said it every episode. I'm like I'm very lucky to to have had employment yeah. this entire time because yeah. I can't imagine my mindset if I was struggling financially as well. You know, I'm already struggling. You know, mentally with everything yeah. <laughs> and with two kids. You know, locked up too. So not not literally not literally. No. <laughs> I mean, yeah, in some cases, you tell me you had two kids. I didn't know they were in juvie. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's their bedrooms. Yeah, <laughs> but we still call them juveniles. <laughs> couple of couple of yo-yos. Um, anyways, th- th- this may be a good opportunity for us to to tie it off. I I I have really enjoyed this conversation. Um, oh, myself as well, for sure. It 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 is um, illuminating. To, to to discover a new portion of of the industry you know like mm. we've spoken to filmmakers directors and 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 all that stuff and it, it's and writers and whatever but it is really cool to, to talk to the person that distills a ton of information down into something that's digestible and 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 uh you have a very unique unique uh role in in, in what you're doing i think it's just fantastic well i i gotta say i appreciate you taking the time to have me on no it's cool that uh Stu could make the intro and that 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 i got to you know in the end have a chat with you this episode of can't sell this was produced in toronto ontario canada all creative content in this episode is copyright hugh elliott and stefan grambart questions or comments can be emailed to admin at can't sell this podcast.com music for the podcast is provided by not of find not of at notof.bandcamp.com Opening and closing voiceover provided by jeffwright.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, a like in whatever platform you use goes a long way to helping the podcast get noticed. Thanks for listening and keep creating. See you.